2: Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friend's still laugh at me to this day.
0: Not everyone gets B2B. But with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be.
1: Are you looking to future-proof your marketing career by getting a better handle on AI? If so, you won't want to miss Adweek's live cast webinar on Tuesday, August 22nd with IBM Chief Digital Officer Bob Lord. From artificial intelligence and machine learning to bots and startups, we'll be covering several of the hottest topics in modern marketing. Visit adweek.com slash webinars to learn more and register. That's adweek.com slash webinars.
0: You're listening to yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, advertising. Because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. And not here this week is Tim Nutt, our usual co-host. Tim is on vacation, but super excited to welcome the panel that we do have. uh, Chris Heiney, our technology editor. Chris, this is your first appearance on the podcast, right? It is. I'm
3: very excited.
0: Man, can not believe it's taken us this long to have you on there. Uh, Chris has been covering Technology Beat at AdWeek for several years and uh, really excited to have your feedback on a very tech-heavy episode that we've got today. Also back is frequent guest and also on the Technology Beat and recently promoted to senior editor, Lauren Johnson. Lauren, congratulations on your promotion. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. All right. So let's dive on in because we have a lot to talk about we're going to be talking about. uh Subway and how they have hit quite a uh, a slump period after some really spectacular growth over several years, and why that is leading to, among other things, a review of their ad agency. Uh, we're going to talk about some layoffs at Vice and what that means for that brand, and then some a really cool idea that Lyft just launched, uh, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. We're going to talk, of course, about this week's ads worth watching, and then we're going to have a big chat about. Our next tech series that came out this week, uh, that began this week, it's going to involve multiple issues of the magazine, tons of stories. Chris and Lauren have been all over that with the rest of our tech team, and so we're going to be diving into that one this week and in coming weeks, so uh, it's going to yield a lot of great stories, really good coverage. So uh, first, the news. Well, as I mentioned, Subway, which is far and away the largest food chain in America, I don't think the average American really understands how gigantic Subway is. Like, you probably anecdotally know that there's a Subway everywhere you look, but people think, oh, there's Starbucks everywhere, there's McDonald's everywhere. Man, there is nowhere near as many uh, as there are of Subways. There are about 27,000 Subways in America. By comparison, there's only about 14,000 McDonald's locations. So, you know, this is a gigantic chain, and they grew fantastically coming out of the recession, Uh, you know, around 2008, 2009. They really just exploded out of that time period. They were opening thousands of locations. Uh, You know, they were everywhere. And then obviously their fortunes have turned a little bit in recent years. They haven't contracted too much. I mean, over like between 2014, 2016, according to our article from Eric Oster, our agency writer, uh, he he says that they shrank about 350 net locations, which when you have twenty seven thousand, that's not a huge number, but they are not growing and they're in a category that is growing, the sandwich. Uh, field and so uh, they announced this week they are doing an agency review, uh, which means they are going to be looking for a new ad a new ad agency to handle their creative. Uh, they have been with. Well, they were with uh, an agency called uh, MB uh, for quite a long time, for about 10 years. And then they switched uh, to, in 2015, they switched to BBDO. And then, like a year later, switched back and basically said, never mind. And they went to MMB, And then now the account is up for grabs again. They may even fold in their media. This is a brand that spends, geez, 100 million uh, uh, per quarter. Uh, so, you know, 400 million a year just in North America. Uh, so you know what's interesting is not so much that they're having a review for their agency. That's something Subway's done off and on over the years, uh, and a lot of and it's always high profile when they do. But what's interesting is why they're struggling. You know they grew probably too aggressively. Uh, they're in a highly competitive market. We've written quite a bit about Arby's, and of course there's Quiznos, there's regional chains like McAllisters, all of which are growing, and then there's Jared. And that surely didn't help. Which of those, uh, Lauren, what, what do you think? What, what do you think is, is Subway's kind of biggest issue at the moment? Or is it something that's not even among those I just listed?
2: Um, I would guess that it's more the like the, the other competition in the market. I think, you know, the Jared fiasco was certainly big when it happened and, and everything else. Although Subway, I think, has taken a lot of steps to kind of... Uh, you know, Jerry's obviously completely out of all of their marketing. They've launched a couple of the new, new things since then and stuff. So I, w- I would kind of chalk it up to just there being so many different sandwich chains and companies out there trying to do the same thing.
0: It feels like they're also kind of the they feel like the low cost player in that space. Like like this is increasingly a quality play. Arby's is really playing up their quality. A lot of these chains are playing up quality, and Subway is still about hey, our food is cheap. Chris, do you, do you feel like that has is not a message that's necessarily kind of kept its its uh, potency <laughs> this many years after two thousand and eight?
3: Yeah, I think that message does lose a lot of its oomph when there's so many other options. You know, like. Uh Lauren alluded to in the marketplace, um, we've all, well, I can speak for myself and most people I know, We've, I think we've all had Subway uh, many, many, many times. And when you walk up and down the street or drive up and down the road and you see so many other options... Um, I think spending a dollar or two more is just outweighs kind of having the same the same kind of thing you've had a number of times before.
0: I, I feel like we're skipping the obvious answer, which is it, millennials are surely killing it, right? Millennials kill everything. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and they, like this. This week's headline was that they're killing the beer industry, and right. you know, chuck that up. I, I saw there was a story going around uh, about margarine and how margarine sales are slumping. and And my friend Tom Logue, who's a uh, a, a researcher, a surveyor, he said, "Was it millennials? Did they strike again?" <laughs> so, surely they are to blame. I'm sure that that we are we are within 48 hours of a Business Insider headline about how millennials are to blame for destroying Subway. So. Keep an eye out for that, uh, but for now, check out our article on adweek.com about the Subway Review, and it will be interesting to see which agencies end up being the finalists for that one. Uh, also, in kind of contraction news in a certain way, we've got Vice. So Vice has about 3,000 people in its North American workforce. They announced they're laying off 60 or maybe more than 60 uh, as, a, as a shift to focus more on video this isn't necessarily as dramatic as a lot of uh, news operations saying they're going to shift to video because many of them aren't doing quite a, you know, a lot. Vice has been doing a great deal of video. This is only 2% of their workforce, so not gigantic, although it's very you know earth-shattering if you are one of those 60-plus. But the real reason I wanted to talk about that is two things. One is that Vice just got $450 million uh, from a private investment firm like a month ago, and then this soon after they're announcing – we're laying off people uh, to to shift to video. So this it's not like they lack the money. They just lack the passion for non-video content. And I, I, I pulled a quote from Shane Smith, uh, Vice co-founder, who said at the time of their investment, he said, this investment will allow us to build up the largest millennial video library in the world, enabling Vice to widen our offering to include news, food, music, fashion, art, travel, gaming, lifestyle, scripted and feature films, which is obviously, yeah, very video heavy. Um, what I wanted to talk to you two about is that we've seen this quite a bit. It's become among journalism circles uh, a bit of a dark joke Is the pivot to video is like the justification for firing as many people as you feel like. Lauren, do you feel that this is a trend I mean, is is this a valid trend of news organizations and, and content organizations to say we got to go all in on video, and that means getting rid of a lot of our written content? Uh, do you think they're going to regret this decision a few years from now, or do you think that's probably the the, the right thing to do? I
2: think um, there's a lot of other publications you could you could bring into this conversation about the pivot to video. Like Mashable is one that I think of that has some kind of deal with Turner, actually. Um, and then a couple weeks ago, there was some tweet going around that got um that kind of went viral about Fox Sports ending all text articles, like a writer complaining about how he is basically unneeded at this point because literally everything is is video on their site now. Um so I think it's it's kind of a indicative of a broader trend where uh, publishers are. Following money, which comes in the form of video advertising, um, and and putting a bigger emphasis on that than they were on text a couple of years ago.
0: Do you, Chris, do you think that this is just kind of a and and I, uh, you know, we should be transparent that the three of us are uh, at our core, we are written word journalists, I and mean, we all have certainly done quite a bit of video. We are right now on a podcast, so you know that shows that we are not just all about the written word, but I I feel like the upside of this is that, yeah, while you're going to have your MTV News and a few of these others, that you know, Fox Sports, uh, some of the examples Lauren gave, they are all pulling back and focusing on video. It feels like this is creating opportunities as well for others to create startups in this space, you know, to these giant conglomerates are leaning everything into video because that's where
3: their programmatic ad revenue is. But I don't know. Is there an upside to this, Chris? For the publications that continue... To invest in text-based journalism? Um, I think so. I mean, the lesser the competition, the easier things get. And I think as people tend to point out here and there when these um, developments come along, and I'd argue it's almost a huge trend. I mean, Bleacher Reports, another uh, publication who has done this, um, there just seems to be a new notable publication making this move every uh, few months if not every few weeks and um, I think people still in a lot of scenarios prefer to read over watch because it sometimes is faster it's uh, it's more um, accessible in terms of the bandwidth on, on their their smartphone and and uh, you know you can't you can't catch up on news uh, via video when you're at a wedding or uh, graduation, but you sure can sneak in a read. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's advantages to text. And I think that you're right. I think the more competition that moves toward um, video and in the Fox scenario, which is extremely drastic only video, the more it helps the publications that really focus on it.
0: Well, I'm sure we will continue to hear the phrase pivot to video. You know, what's interesting is anecdotally for us, it's it, we are, again, you know, it's kind of – it's a tough story to talk about because it directly affects the industry that we are in and that pays our bills. But, you know, Adweek has a great video team. We have great video content. Um, but as someone who looks at our analytics every single week and is constantly looking at our numbers – you know, the lion's share of attention and engagement is really around our written content. And yeah, we have video examples and case studies, and oftentimes we do compile those into videos. But, you know, our audience has certainly not shown this proclivity for only show me video. There's nothing that would make me say, like, we need to pivot to video and drop a third of our staff or anything like that. So, again, it's one of those where... I'd say we're a pretty advanced publication in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we certainly have not been slow to embrace, uh, you know, new ideas, new technology. But yeah, it's a, so it is every time I hear that, I think it's just the difference between being a consumer publication and one that focuses on kind of more business minded people. You know, professionals uh, are willing to read a little more. You know, we're not necessarily a diversion uh, that like some of these uh, like
3: the vices and, and everybody else. I don't know. It will be interesting. I'll play devil's advocate, and you know, concerns concerns of these titles that we're talking about. I think what they must be discussing internally is the evergreen nature of video um, compared to text, and how you know, for the cost of creating a thirty second to three minute video um, that's interesting, Uh, they probably feel like the long tail on that makes it more profitable. Than a tech story.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say that I think Vice is a little bit of an outlier in this situation. There was a story, I don't know, maybe a year ago, maybe less than that, that the journal did about you know the, like Vice's rise in the TV and cable world, and it had all these like interesting anecdotes about how a cable a cable channel had always kind of been in the cards for Shane Smith. He wanted to always be on TV. That was always the goal. And there, you know, there was stuff in there about how um vice in vice's brooklyn office they've been hosting like pizza parties because millennials can't watch the content they actually produce at home because none of them own cable packages uh so they'll do stuff at, at the like watch parties at the office and that sort of thing so i i feel like video has always been where vice has invested a bit more and now you're seeing um um Get the, you know, big investments. And so they, it seems like they're kind of pushing harder into making that actually happen.
0: Well, we have talked subway sales slumps. We have talked vice layoffs. Let's talk something positive, a, a truly wonderful change in the world that we can all get behind, which is that Lyft is testing out a taco mode that lets you uh, take a slight uh, detour on your ride to get a free Doritos Locos Taco from Taco Bell uh, on on your ride. Chris, you wrote about this. Tell us uh, how this works. So so at the moment, it's a, it's a pretty small test that they're going to be running in, in one or two markets, right? Yes.
3: Yeah, so it's starting out in Orange County, California um, at the end of this month and at the beginning of August. And it's slowly expanding um, throughout the country Till the end of the year, and then I guess it's going to roll out nationwide um, in 2018. So everyone who is a Lyft user will see an icon on in the app, which will allow them to um, order their Lyft driver to to go to the nearest Taco Bell, where they'll get a Doritos Locos taco, a a single Doritos Locos taco, um, for free. And... um, you know, I think the thinking here is it allows Lyft to um, appeal to a younger demographic, younger adult demographic, which is huge to the Taco Bell audience. And for Taco Bell, I you know they're always at the forefront of emerging tech compared to most brands. And this is just another example of that. And obviously, people at this service is going to be available, by the way, between nine PM and. 2 a.m. So obviously, young people coming home from the bar and uh, w- wanting to pull through a Taco Bell are going to want more than a single Doritos Locos taco. They'll probably end up spending six or seven dollars, which makes us a classic loss leader win, potentially, for Taco Bell.
0: Yeah, it's hard to picture someone who's just like, man, I sure have the munchies, I'll go get one Taco Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel a little bad for these Lyft drivers, because, like, these Dorito tacos, they're they are not neat. You know, this isn't, <laughs> this isn't like the, this isn't the, it's not like you get a free Frappuccino that you can uh, sip in the back of your car. It's like, here's this big, dusty Dorito <laughs> like mess for a drunk person to eat in the back of your car. <laughs> so, hopefully Lyft is uh, is getting quite a bit of money for this. Those drivers
3: are going to need uh, 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 vacuum, vacuum cleaners and air fresheners. That'll
0: be their next brand deals, like partnering with uh, Dyson or something, R- <laughs> to, right? Like, <laughs> help these poor people who have to end their night vacuuming up lettuce and Dorito dust. Uh, well, that'll be a, a fun integration. Uh, do you guys think we're going to, you know, see more of this? I mean, this feels. The specifics aside of the taco and, and all that, uh, you know, it just feels like this kind of integration is what we're going to be seeing a ton of in the coming years as this ride sharing apps continue to proliferate and compete with each other.
2: Yeah, we were talking about that this morning briefly, and I think uh, the argument in that is that Lyft has leaned into this these types of branded in-car experiences maybe a bit heavier than than Uber has uh, for for different reasons. But I think it's something you're definitely going to see more of.
3: Yeah, Lyft has taken on brand partnerships as a pure marketing platform where Uber with Uber Eats seems to be more in the delivery business for companies like, you know, potentially like Taco Bell. I know Lyft did a brand partnership with Delta earlier that also kind of underscores Lyft's aims to be a basically a digital marketing platform for the real world. What was their partnership with Delta? You know – Basically, I think it's a rewards. It's part of a rewards program. I, I I don't remember the exact specifics, but I remember being wrapped around Delta Rewards. Right,
0: okay. Yeah, I was just curious. Um. All right. Well, uh, thank you for that. I definitely encourage everybody to check out uh, Chris Heine's article on Adweek.com about the Taco Mode that you will soon be able to activate on your Lyft, or if you're in Orange County, uh, sooner than the rest of us. Uh. But now it's time for us to talk about this week's ads worth watching. <laughs> All right, well, Tim is out this week. Our creative editor, Tim Nutt, is on vacation, so it falls on me to select uh, this week's ads worth watching. uh, One uh, was incredibly easy to select because to me it was one of the most powerful ads of the year uh, this is a basically it's a P&G spot but it's for a, an initiative that was created back in uh, wow it's I want to say 2006 it's a, it's over a decade old uh, but an initiative called my black is beautiful uh, which is about really advancing conversations around race and about diversity uh, and how those fit into products and marketing and they have relaunched it with a really incredible spot uh, that's kind of a you know the talk about the, the kind of talks parents have. Uh, typically, when you see this in a in an ad situation, it's about sex or drugs or going out or being safe or whatever it is. This time, it's a much more powerful message. It is about uh, parents of uh, you know black children, black teens uh, specifically talking to them about the realities of racial bias, of, of you know hatred, of prejudice, of the, the very different world they live in uh, than those of us who are not black in America and the very specific things. And it's not just uh, modern and topical, although it certainly is. They cover aspects about what to do if you're pulled over and parents are very concerned and you see parents waiting up at night just scared. Their kids aren't even doing anything uh, dangerous. You know, they're just out uh, you know, out in their car, they're out for a walk, and it's a really powerful reminder that that can be lethal uh, for for you know some black teens in America, and uh, and so it's a really incredible spot. But it actually starts um, decades ago with a, uh, a mom and her daughter. So let's listen to some of this ad. It is so powerful. I definitely recommend checking out. It's two minute ad. So we're, we're not going to listen to all of it, but let's listen to some of this uh, some of this spot.
2: How's your review? We're good. You're good. Yeah, you see? We're good. Okay.
1: Good. Now, when you get pulled over... Um, I'm a good driver. Okay. Baby, don't worry. This is not about you getting a ticket. This is about you not coming home.
2: I'm going to be okay. Right? Okay. okay. Baby.
0: So, yeah, this feels like, while well, it's, it's hard to call this an uplifting ad, uh, because there's certainly so much just reminder of, of the dark realities and the fact that, you know, that while the conversation has maybe changed a little bit from the 40s, 50s, 60s, that it is still an ongoing conversation. Uh, you know, Chris, you're a fellow parent like myself. How did this ad hit you?
3: I thought it was incredibly effective. I um, I when I, My gut reaction to it was just as um, someone, frankly, who grew up in the Midwest, and I just started wondering about um, people in between the t- the coasts um, seeing this ad more so than maybe other parts of the country, and um, you know I think because I think it's just a really good eye opener for a lot of people who don't think about racial prejudice um, often or haven't ever thought about it, and you know bringing bringing the conversation so to speak or or, or presenting this the conversation within people's households, within uh, families' households, um, I think is very powerful. And I think it brings it home to like a level that everyone can understand, like, you know, parents advising their children to, to be safe. Lauren, what did you think of this spot?
2: I, um, yeah, I also thought it was very effective. And there's that one scene where there's the, you know, presumably 15 to 16-year-old girl learning how to drive in the car with her mom. And um, that scene was really moving because you, you realize this mom is not worried about her daughter uh, driving a car and the fact that she's driving this big piece of machinery. She's more concerned about her daughter not doing any, anything wrong and getting pulled over because of her race. Um, so that scene in particular I thought was really moving and um, something I think a lot of people are going to pick apart as being a... The, you know, an interesting part of the the ad.
0: Well, and we certainly live in a time where anything that discusses the realities of race is going to be political and divisive. And I'm sure, you know, it's, uh, it, I, I guess I would just say props to PNG on, uh, you know, they certainly have been willing in the past to take uh, a stance on issues of inclusiveness. Uh, but this is, you know, it's a really direct spot. I thought they could have really, um, you know, they certainly could have made it a, a even more ominous and hard hitting spot, but they, they also could have really watered it down uh, and just tried to play it very safe. I thought they found a really good middle ground. It's just a beautiful spot, really kind of sticks with you. Um, and it, while the goals of this ad are very broad, uh, you know, they're to try to get, to start a larger conversation is the way they phrase it. And I think in that respect, it certainly is, Is it's one of those ads I can't stop thinking about. So definitely recommend everyone, uh, you know, if you visit uh, adweek.com and look for My Black is Beautiful, uh, you will find a spot just Some really lovely work and very, very powerful. Uh, On a completely different uh, tone, the other ad that really stuck out to me this week, uh, really I saw this one on Instagram Stories. Um, Our our writer Katie Richards uh, was invited to cover a wedding dress Design competition uh, that requires you to use toilet paper, and this was the first year. I guess this thing's been going on for over a decade. Uh, But Quilted Northern uh, sponsored it this year. Uh, They, it sounds like the idea kind of came about through their uh, agency partner Droga5, and so they they partnered with uh, these aspiring designers or probably are already designers uh, to create wedding dresses out of their toilet paper uh, and basically really highlighting the fact that it's triple ply, which that's fancy. Even my house, we don't we don't go full triple ply. That's uh, so this is the good <laughs> stuff. Like <laughs> that that part alone, it's. I was like, well, that worked on me. It's like, oh, I didn't even know. I didn't know there were such things that the wealthy must enjoy every day of their life. Uh, but some really fantastic designs. It's it's pretty stellar. And I mean, what do you guys think of this idea of kind of really taking a product as as kind of. Literally disposable as toilet paper, and finding ways to to turn it into art or even fashion.
2: Well, I suppose it makes it a little bit less disposable, right? Uh, I think I saw you know some of the images of the dresses that they had come up with, and some of them you look at it and you don't even realize that it's toilet paper. And not in all, I guess, in not all of the cases, it is like you find um, some of them might incorporate toilet paper, but it's actually still. Fabric and cloth underneath it, or something. I'm not sure.
0: Um, I think they were only they were only allowed to use like glue, toilet paper, and shoot like one other thing. I'll, if I if I find it, I'll pull it up. But it, it was like overwhelmingly toilet paper.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. <laughs> but, but I I have a feeling that they know uh, they know a lot of tricks of how to like I don't know knit that stuff into a tougher fabric or what. But,
2: I mean, I was thinking of this like so. Um, at a friend's bachelor party that I did this with at like when I was in college, like it's a much more advanced than uh, I think the average person would be able to pull off.
0: Well, the uh, you know it's always interesting to me to see, especially in this era of Instagram stories, Snapchat stories. This is something that marketers are still trying to get their head around uh, of how to really take advantage of stories. Uh, you know, you, you certainly see a lot more sponsored stories. Uh, you know, Lord knows I do in in you know Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, but, you know, Lauren, it feels like this is kind of the perfect example of how you can uh, build content that really plays well with in this culture where every app now has stories, uh, that this seemed perfect for that.
2: Yeah, it's the kind of content that wouldn't have worked in other types of mediums. It wouldn't have been nearly as effective or cool if you had done a TV spot with this.
0: All right. Well, we are going to go from the high tech of toilet paper wedding dress design to... All things high tech as we head to our big discussion of the week to talk about the next tech package. All right. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this week's cover story was the first of uh, a very large content package we're doing called Next Tech. It's going to involve another issue as well, which we will be back to talk. I'm sure one of, if not both of you, will be back to talk about it as well. Uh, but uh, this week marked the kickoff of it. Chris, you wrote the cover story. So maybe let's just start there. Uh, it's about uh, Bevel founder Tristan Walker, uh, who has created the parent company for Bevel Walker & Co. And it sounds like he's really building it out into uh, quite a Fascinating business, but but first, I'm just curious. How did did you decide, uh, you know, that he would be in his business would be the best one to feature as kind of this uh, representative of the transformation that businesses are going through uh, through technology and data?
3: Well, first of all, the Next Tech series is one month long. Uh, For four weeks, we'll have at least one story that either attacks the subjects of marketing technology, digital transformation, customer experience. And those types of topics and, and subcategories. And one of the topics we att- tackled in this issue of Adweek magazine was jobs and career transformation. And Tristan is a is a great representative of someone who was going down a certain path in tech, but noticed a, a great opportunity in e-commerce and basically made a, a huge switch and Seems to be benefiting greatly due to that due to the decision. Um, well, tell tell us
0: about that transition. So, what was he doing before? And this guy, he was at some some pretty major companies. Yep. Uh,
3: what was his path, and then and then how did he how did he transition? Well, Tristan's a New Yorker who got his MBA in Stanford, and while he was there, he started working for Twitter as an intern and was given more and more responsibility, and he became kind of legendary in the local Silicon Valley scene for being. An incredibly hard worker, some you know, someone who basically didn't sleep while he finished his M- MBA, um, and he attracted Foursquare uh, and, and landed a business development gig there, and he, he was kind of a, a, a minor legend already at that point. So when he decided to you know move to Bevel, or I should say, start his own company, Walker and Company, um, it was. A big switch and basically you know had a conversation with a CPG exec who was retired and that conversation basically led to the creation of a Bevel, which is a product for it's a product that's made for African American men who have trouble with the razor bumps. Um it's a subscription package that costs thirty dollars a month and it includes um all the all the shaving creams, uh razors and other tools that you need to shave. But um, honestly, his, his, he he came from a tech background, and that gave him kind of a a leg up on, compared to most e-commerce startup founders. And he was able to to apply data some marketing technology to his company to get it off the ground very quickly.
0: What I love about his story is that yeah, he he was this kind of you know South by Southwest royalty, kind of a figure in that in that early adopter phase. And you know you would think that he would create a startup that's all you know, all tech, that he would have launched an app or he would have launched, you know, something in the location space uh, or wearables or whatever. But instead, it really came out of this conversation, as you mentioned, and, you, and that you talk about in your interview, that uh, he was talking to someone who mentioned that, uh, you know, if you look back at older photos of African-Americans, they don't have, and I mean, we're talking like 1920s, 1930s, uh, th- that you can see from the photos that they did not have, you know, this irritation, these bumps from shaving. And so he really started digging into that, researching and found that it that it was the difference in the technology of what we used to shave. Of the back then, they used the straight razors, and they had this kind of old school equipment. Where now we obviously are much more disposable. Uh, I just, I love these stories of kind of the really modern tech meeting the really old school. I mean, it doesn't get much more old school than straight razors, <laughs> you know. The bridging those two worlds.
3: Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's really perfect. I mean, the fact that you know he, he's been able to grow his business uh, by Two hundred percent year over year, and they expect to grow up by three hundred percent this year. I think uh, speaks to the the quality of the you know the products and the thoughtfulness of the products and the product development that they put in.
0: Uh, you know, it seems like data is really baked into everything they do. But you also asked him about kind of one of the biggest topics in. Uh, digital marketing right now, which is marketing cloud, and which one you're going to sign up with, and which you know which of these big players. But they went a very different route. What what are they doing?
3: They built their own custom cloud internally, and uh, he's got. It's still a relatively small company, you know. I think they just have a few dozen employees, but 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 seven of them are engineers, and they've created this custom marketing cloud that basically lets them use data to better target email, better target. Um, their social media, and also make smarter decisions when it comes to purchasing via Google and Facebook advertising.
0: And, and you also asked him about uh, his his career advice for people who want to uh, to shift careers the way, I mean, he obviously was doing pretty well to begin with, but really found this entrepreneurial avenue. What was his advice for people who want to try something different?
3: His advice was to, you know, find what makes your your voice unique and your perspective unique and if you can apply that to a product or service that's going to be your strategic um, advantage.
0: Yeah. It's a, I, li- I liked that angle of, you know, a lot of people start by thinking about what is the marketplace need? What is the niche I'm filling? What is the product gap? You know, and, and uh, I think the danger of that is people often end up starting companies or pursuing ideas that they don't have any actual passion or unique skill set for. You know what I mean? It's like they say like, oh, the world needs a good taco, whatever. And it's like, oh, of course, I have I don't have any background in tacos, and I don't don't bring anything to that table. I just think that the world needs more of those. Uh, You know, it feels like that is one of the biggest mistakes I see listening to podcasts like The Pitch or watching shows like Shark Tank. You know, that's just something where I'm just like, why are you pursuing this if it's not something that you— you know, have have a existing passion or experience in. So, you know, I thought that was really good advice. Is people start too often with the problem and the solution rather than themselves and the value that they bring to it. Um, I, I did want to talk about our most popular piece uh, to come out of the package so far uh, has been a, a list of the 10 next hot jobs in digital marketing. This is one I remember when we very first started talking about this package like months ago or whenever that was. And this was the one I had the most fun talking about with Lisa Granitstein, our print editor. Was I said you know we need to do a list of these like what are the next really cool jobs the next hot jobs and I remember we debated you know how many of these can we can we pull together and in the end uh, ten was was more than I even expected but it's a great list I mean you've got some stuff in there that people are already thinking about like at the highest level the chief experience officer uh, is one that's really kind of risen in the last few years but I think a lot of people still probably don't know it exists uh, you've got things like VR editor uh, which you know most of us probably assume ah eh, someone's probably doing that but there are certain Certainly a lot of opportunities there, but then you have some really nice specific ones to uh, kind of the emerging technology just of the last year or so, like machine learning engineer, machine learning, or, you know, the way we use algorithms, the way, what we often call AI, even even if that's not really accurate. Um, that's such an amazingly huge topic right now. And if you were coming out of college or were able to shift into an industry like that or into a specialty like that, man, you would just, at least for the next few years, you'd be made of money. Uh, you'd probably have as many offers thrown at you as you could handle. Lauren, what were some of the other jobs that, that jumped out at you or at least the, the kind of the big picture buckets of, of career opportunities there?
2: Uh, well, some of the more interesting ones, I think, were, let's see, there's a human, there's a, Machine learning engineer, which is kind of interesting because you that's counterintuitive. (laughs) You think that a machine learning and AI is basically gonna handle itself. But you know, I we certainly talk to a lot of brands and agencies where they see a world where they're gonna be a little less hands-on with uh, the marketing and advertising in the coming years because of robots, but more often than not, there's usually a human on the other end of that and someone that needs to, you know, program and make sure. all these systems sync and that everything's good. Um, so that one was interesting to me. I also like the data scientist because I feel like that's not a new, a, a new job per se, but you do see that's always like the top job that I feel like all companies are always hiring for more and more data scientists because it's a real skill that companies just don't have enough of.
0: Yeah, I think what I noticed with data scientist is that it reminded me that there are several fields where you know, one th- one question is the number of job opportunities, and with data scientists, a lot is the answer. There are a lot of job opportunities. Whereas you talk about some of the ones, we have one in here called Omnichannel Retail Strategist. How many job opportunities are there in that space? Well, not many, but the other side of that question is what is the growth opportunity within those careers? So if you're a data scientist, honestly, like, you'll get a job. You'll get a good job, but... You know, either because of the the nature of the people who pursue those jobs or just the nature of the industries that tend to hire quite a few of those folks, you have fewer opportunities to to progress up the ladder. Whereas, uh, you know, I think something like omnichannel retail strategist, which sounds buzzy, but, you know, if you get a job like that, chances are you will be promoted into whatever the next retail mega trend is, you know, after omni-channel uh, and so, you know, I thought that was interesting going through and looking at some of these just seem like they're a little more future-proof than
3: others. Do you think that's fair? I do. Yeah, I do. I, I think um, the chief experience officer that you mentioned earlier, the CXO, so to speak, is going to be a fascinating role to watch because it seems as though various types of categories are going to be hiring for this position if they haven't already, and I believe that if you start out as a Cxo for a retailer, obviously that's going to be very portable to an automotive brand or a financial brand or a um, CPG brand because basically the the job role is is, is very um, it's very high level thinking. But it's very specialized at the same time because you really need a design thinking mindset and background, and you need to be able to apply like des- design thinking to like the customer experience as a whole and the customer journey, which applies to um, various different sectors. You know, the, the the other thing that occurred to me too is that a lot of people probably read something like this and think, "Oh, if only
0: you know, if only I had." focused on that in college. If only I were younger, if only, you know what I mean? I, I don't think that's the case. I've had so many friends in the last few months, like in the last few weeks, honestly, who've been messaging me and saying, hey, I just got a new gig. And most of them are coming out of ad agencies or, you know, areas where I would have met them in the last 10 years. And they are all getting jobs at VR, uh, you know, studios, AR uh, companies. Uh, you know, these, these fields, it's not like you have to have been focused on this as an undergraduate or whatever you know you can definitely pivot and and I think to me part of that is just recognizing kind of going back to Tristan's point uh, in our profile with him is recognizing the skill and the value that you bring like the value is not necessarily that you are an expert in like one of the positions is hologram retail display designer you know I doubt you got your undergraduate degree in holiday hologram retail display (laughs) in design you know but you probably have unique skills that make you uh, really good at augmented reality or that, that let you at least see the opportunities in there. So to me, that was kind of one of the bigger uh, things that may not have come across in the article itself is that I, I wonder how many people read this and kind of were dissuaded in a sense. But that's why I like that at the end, we did kind of shift the focus of the article to uh, to talk about changing careers. Uh, and that was really kind of the whole point of this package really is to help people see the opportunities ahead for their industries, but also for themselves. And so uh, uh, Lauren, you got to talk to Sarah Epps at Facebook uh, about this very specific topic. So w- what did she have to say about kind of what she was doing before and then where she ended up in, and uh, and what, what sparked that transition for her?
2: What I think is interesting is she ha- said she's always had um, an interest in technology. She was just, co- she was in it from a different uh, angle when she was an analyst at Forest Forrester and more or less like covering the the companies and and how how all of it um, works without actually being physically you know involved in any of it and um, I just pulled up my a draft of the story that didn't make it into the print version but she does have this really interesting story about how she realized that she needed to make a change she was tra- um, at Google's headquarters in California and was trying on a pair of Google Glasses at the time, which a few couple of years ago, uh, or a couple week- years ago, were you know kind of the hot, buzzy tech item. And she says, I was trying on these glasses and it was simultaneously delightful and horrifying. And that's when she kind of realized that um, there was a bigger opportunity for her to actually be involved in building some of this technology versus just covering it. And um, she's had a few different roles at Facebook since making the leap from Forrester. Um, but I think one of the main things I took away from our conversation is like at Forrester as an analyst, a lot of her job was very, um, you know, on her, she was on her own for a lot of it which makes sense. If you're an analyst, you're, you know, you're covering different areas and are very much like focused on your own goals, which is definitely not the case at Facebook. Uh, her point was that like, you can't do anything at Facebook alone. Um, she can't, obviously can't launch any kind of product, product alone. There's very, very little that isn't collaborative uh, at her job. So that was kind of an interesting point that she made about, you know, the major differences between the Two jobs.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's you know that's something you just never really think about when you're an analyst or researcher. Or any of those, you know, man, those are very isolated roles. And uh, I, I've seen people make that transition very effectively, as I'm sure Sarah has. Uh, and then I've seen people who really, who you know, they get either promoted into a role that requires a lot more collaboration, or they get thrown into a new culture of going somewhere like uh, Facebook. You know, it's it's. It, I've had a bunch of friends get hired by Facebook over the years. I mean, not a bunch, but a handful. And it really, their experience there really depends on kind of where they were coming from because, man, it is, it sounds like a crazy experience. But if you love, you know, just kind of this open collaboration and, and, you know, always innovating and always like playing off each other's ideas and being surrounded by other geniuses, uh, it's, it's probably a pretty amazing place to work. And if that, if you're, if you're uh, introvert, as a lot of obviously developers uh, are, I'm sure it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, but uh, definitely recommend everyone check out our guide to the 10 next hot jobs in digital marketing. It's a really fun read. Uh, and we've got so much more uh, coming up in this space. Uh, I guess, uh, Chris, what can you tell us about the next issue of, of Next Tech without uh, without giving away too much? I mean, what, what kind of topics are we going to be covering in the, in the next
3: issue? In the next issue uh, of Adweek Magazine on August 7th, we'll be focusing a lot on artificial intelligence. And uh, in particular, AI voice and the huge impact it's going to have on both the, comm- the e-commerce space, as well as the um, offline retail space, as well as the data targeting space. It's, it's, it's really a, a fascinating quote-unquote now subject, and uh, we look forward to uh to the fruits of our labor when it comes to that story.
0: Well, we will uh, definitely have, uh, if not both of you back on, certainly I'm sure we'll have at least one of you back on and uh, maybe rotate in. Uh, Marty, our other tech writer, has been working really hard on this uh, and uh, definitely recommend it. It's just a great time if you are into tech and transformation of the marketing industry uh, and career transformation, uh, definitely want to check out this package. So uh, just... Google Adweek Next Tech, and you will find all of it. Uh, so there's a there's a whole easy landing page to see all those articles. So, uh, yeah, thank you both for for coming on to talk about that. I want to remind everybody, you can drop us an email anytime. We're at podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at adweek.com. You can find me pretty easily. I'm on Twitter at uh, Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R, on Twitter. That's uh, pretty easy. And Adweek, of course, you can hit us on there, too. Uh, But uh, yeah, we love hearing from you. Uh, As Chris mentioned, we've got part two of our next tech series coming soon. We've also got a special package on marketing to millennial parents, uh, which I'm really excited about. That's going to be a great one. And uh, yeah, so a lot of fun stuff coming up. Keep an eye on adweek.com and on the magazine. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. And please take a minute, if you have not, to uh, leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, but they also help new listeners discover the podcast. Thank you to all of you who have left reviews. We love them. We love reading about them. And uh, we will be back next week to talk about lots more. So we will talk to you then.
1: Don't forget to join Adweek's Livecast webinar about the potential of AI in your marketing career. IBM Chief Digital Officer Bob Lord will walk us through the practical ways that bots and machine learning are reshaping the marketing world. The webinar is Tuesday, August 22nd, and you won't want to miss it. So visit adweek.com slash webinars to learn more and register. That's adweek.com slash webinars.